Grab your Bibles, please, open them up to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. That's where we are currently, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Word of God. Currently, again, in John, chapter 3. It's a real treat to see you all. John chapter 3, we pick it up this evening in verse 22. So go ahead and um, that, meet me right there so you know I'm not making any of this up. Can you read along with me if you would, please? After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Ainon near Salim, because there was much water there, and, and they came and were baptized. The John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. So uh, they came in the end, they came to John and said to him, Ravi, he was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it had been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ but that I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Will you pray with me, please? I thank you, dear God, for the opportunity this evening to expect you to do miracles. Where your word would be open and where your truth would be proclaimed. So I pray, God, first that you knit me to your will so that I would disappear and that you would appear. And then second, God, you fill me to overflowing that I douse these precious saints with your presence, God. So that each one of us would have a deeper and more meaningful understanding of everything you have in this text for us. We recognize, God, that you know every one of us right where we're at and we're in different places, God. Some are greater levels of maturity than others, some still figuring it out, some feeling like they have it all figured out and have yet to. But God, with every bit of this, I just want to pray tonight that you would meet and encounter every one of us. You know how to do that, and only you can do such a thing to where you can minister to us individually right where we're at. But beyond that, God, I pray that you would also minister to us corporately, that we would hear your voice as you would speak to us as a church, as a group of people set apart unto you for the ministry you've ordained. And I pray tonight, God, that your word would come alive. Lord, as it does, that you would interface with us and leave us permanently changed. That we would be able to say tonight, on this night, the 6th of October, that we would, my life was changed for the permanent and for the better. So I commit this night to you in every way. Redeem every second, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. That's always the way it is. Um, Now, let's put things into context. If you flip back for a moment to chapter 2, verse 13. And again, first of all, what we want to do is set set the stage. It tells us that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So that's sort of the beginning of this whole thing. Then in chapter 2, Jesus had left the area of Galilee... And then made his way down then into Jerusalem. But chapter 4, verse 3, and flip there for a moment. 
we read that he leaves Judea and departs again to Galilee. So somewhere in between this moment in Jerusalem and a shift then just a little bit northeast of where he's at to the area then of Judea right at this the um, great African rift where the Jordan River resides. Jesus has a radical encounter and then on his way back to Galilee he'll have a second one. And I want you to recognize again it's spring. Remember that back in chapter 2, verse 13, the time of the Passover was at hand. That's the first and last scene. That's the first month of the year. That's the Jewish New Year. The first month not being January as we know it, but actually being that time of basically March and April. So it's the beginning of the harvest. It's the beginning of seeing the sun again and and the rain subsiding and the evening winds replacing. And you get to see the night sky for once. And it's a beautiful season. And in between these moments of Jesus encountering a religious leader who thinks he's had it all figured out and a woman who is a castaway, we have this segue text from verse 22 then to the remainder of the chapter, verse 36. In that particular text, we've moved now away from this encounter where a man that has all of the ritual, all of, you know, all of the book of common, everything worked out, and he, kind of, he can do it in his sleep, and he knows all of the rituals, he knows the regalia of them all, and by play by play, he knows how to get them done, and Jesus looks and he gives him something that there's no way he could possibly attain. And that is the idea that God must come down to him versus him rising up to them. And the whole idea of that man can't ascend to God, God has to condescend to man. That's how that whole thing comes. And the difference between us making our relationship with God in it versus uh, him is the difference between whether or not we're the ones who ascend or God's the one who condescends. And that's really the radical difference in everything of it. And the reason we celebrate this God is not because we've now finally reached the finish line and we've climbed the amount of steps and we've done all of the Herculean feats, but the opposite. Because we can't. We're a dead man desperately in need of reviving. And the only one who is capable of doing that is the God of life, who has come down, met us where we are, crawled into our own guilt, and punished it upon his own body. So and that's on one side of it. So we have a man who everyone would have, would have basically seen as a paradigm, as an example, as a symbol of this is good religion. But on the other side of it, what we'll see you know, in the weeks to come in chapter 4 will be the opposite. A person that's a castaway, a woman who's had several husbands. Um, the man she's now living with isn't her husband. What a great thing to address in the particular culture we're living at now. And in all of that, somewhere in between that, we have this text here. This becomes, in essence, sort of our last real big moment with John the Baptist as he shines for us. And I want you to kind of consider in all of this, again, as John sort of prepares us like one big Haggadah, one big Passover celebration where everything must get prepared. You know, prepared. And one of those things, by the way, is the shta, what's called a shtaim erchatz. Shtaim means two. Erchatz means, means cleaning or cleansing. And there are two specific cleansings that need to take place for anyone to celebrate Pesach or Passover. The first of them is a total cleansing where the person seeks to separate themselves from the world around them and then immerse themselves in the mikvah, that sort of ritual bath, where they sort of completely are covered and it's sort of the forerunner for the baptism, which is what we have here. And then the second is a simple washing of hands because there will be food dipped. And there are certain people that we know, even among our team, that are sort of very concerned about germs. So washing is very... I mean, that's sort of one of the things that you find to be quite attractive. Let's just say it that way. And I find it interesting, unique to the Gospel of John, he will address it that way. We'll have that moment here where we have that baptism, but then as we have that moment of baptism, ultimately there will be a washing of hands where if you remember, instead of just the washing of hands to be clean, it's our very Savior and God who clothes himself 
girding himself, and then washes the feet of his own disciples, including, by the way, Judas, as as sort of exciting as that would be. So somewhere in between these moments, we have this washing, this washing. And I I don't find it accidental that Jesus is going to meet even the woman that's the castaway at a well, nonetheless. And how all of this sort of revolves around that season of water, as we do see here as well. Now, with that in mind, we get reread again and go with me. Verse 22, where it says, that after these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, Jesus had already been Galilee. Somewhere in all of this, he had returned back to Nazareth. And after returning back to Nazareth, he'd been rejected as being commonplace. We know his father. We know his mother. We, I mean, isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know his four brothers and his sisters as well? We know them by name. At least the brothers, as they're listed. Uh, but who is this guy? Who do you think you are? And Jesus now returns back to a place where Jesus himself had emerged from uh, obscurity, where the heavens were parted, I remind you, and God himself testified, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And now Jesus, strangely enough, is taking his disciples to do the very thing that John the Baptist was doing. What's very evident about this is that John himself, even after Jesus' immersion into sort of public life, that John still had a bit of disciples himself. Ultimately, we'll find that there's less, less than um, Jesus will have. But we read here in verse 23 that John also was baptizing near Ainon, near Salim, because there was much water there, and there, he also, and there they were baptized. Now, for what it's worth, these two words, I, I find are really kind of hinting at really what we have at the moment. Um, the first word, Ainon, comes from the Hebrew word Ain. Can you say Ain? Ain, Ain is a simple Hebrew word. It means I. Now, because of that, and remember, every Hebrew word comes from a verb, the idea of to see or to, to emit, to gather. Uh, that word I, by the way, ultimately becomes sort of the eye of uh, a garden, which ultimately is your fountain. I mean, every garden or every vineyard has to have an eye in it, and that eye would be the place where water is. So we assume there's a natural spring here by the very term itself. So this isn't just the Jordan River, but somewhere in it, there's a natural spring catering to it. And we know there are several of those that are sort of small underground springs. But also, what I find more fascinating is the word salim. Because salim, for what it's with, saluho, simply means to waver or to agitate, to shake in between two things. And what I find interesting is that's really what we're going to see really in this text. Is that there are people driven by the very sight are going to be agitated to waver between one side or the other. Now, what we have is we have a group of people on one side that are really scoping out John the Baptist's ministry and have a great deal of arguments about it at a place where there's a tremendous amount of water. And what we really see in John's defense is that John really has knowledge of four very, very clear things. And I I think they're fundamental for anyone who wants to be a servant of the living God. Please don't lose these things as we look at them. We do have a timestamp, and that's in verse 24. Notice it says that John hadn't been thrown into prison yet. Now, if all we were reading were the Gospel of John and we hadn't been familiar with the other three, this would be, of course, terribly foreboding. It's even more foreboding if you've read the other three because, you know, not only is he thrown in prison, but he gets his head lopped off once he gets there. So it isn't like it's going to be anything pleasant. Now, it's still a season, therefore, of emerging. It's a season of emerging because it's spring. It's a season of emerging because it's the season of first fruits. And it's a season of emerging because Jesus himself still has a season of emerging as John the Baptist tends to be, if you will, sort of the hinge pin for every major moment in Jesus' life and his ministry. If you remember, John the Baptist is announced as his birth and then Jesus is 
birth will be announced. And then John the Baptist is born, and then Jesus will be born. And then a season of obscurity for both of them, and then John the Baptist emerges in the wilderness, and then Jesus emerges out of the water. And then after that, John the Baptist will ultimately be put in prison, and there will be a time of great debate among the people, who does this guy really think he is? And then John the Baptist will be killed, and from that moment on, Jesus sets his sights towards the cross. So every one of those moments that John the Baptist is sort of dropped in becomes a real landmark for the ministry of Jesus. They become sort of the stage markers for all of the moments that Jesus is going to be doing something. Here what we read is, this is still the time of emerging, still the time when Jesus is still becoming known as John the Baptist is still in ministry. Now for what it's worth, ultimately what will pull Jesus out of this area will be the fact that he's learning that he's baptizing more people than John. Now, it could be quite likely the reason why that is, is that John isn't baptizing anymore at all anyways. As a matter of fact, the reason I say that is that's exactly what we'll read in the text. When we'll read, first of all, we won't even read that it's Jesus that's baptizing, it's his disciples. We read that in John 4, chapter chapter 4, verse 2. But it tells us, by the way, that when Jesus learns that John the Baptist had been put in prison, Jesus will leave this area and head back to Galilee. So, if we put everything together, this is what we have. Jesus has sort of emerged. He's done a small trip around the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. He's head down now with his disciples down into the area of Jerusalem. And once he's in Jerusalem, he encounters this man who wants to know who he is, this religious leader named Nicodemus, a future ally and, if you will, mortician. And then from that, he's going to leave that situation and move now to the area where he's baptizing, which, by the way, is north and east of where he is because that's where the Jordan River is. And he's going to be there and baptizing. Somewhere in all of that, John will be arrested. John will be taken away. Jesus will learn that it's no longer time for him to be baptizing. It's a new season. And he heads up north now to begin a great deal of his public ministry, the majority of his public ministry. Now, with that in mind, we read now that there's a conflict. Verse 24, they're not yet. John had not yet been put into prison. And there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Now, hear me out. God has an awful lot to say about purification. Unfortunately, what God speaks out in the area of purification gets completely absconded from and reviewed and revamped by the time that man starts to write his laws about cleanliness. Then when God starts to speak about cleanliness, God wants us clean from the inside out. That's the simplest way of putting it. And when he speaks about having clean hands or a pure heart, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord and who can stand before his holy place? He with clean hands and a pure heart. Now hear that out. Why are his hands clean? Because his heart is pure. Who hasn't raised his hands or his heart to an idol? And that's what God speaks about. God says, look at what I really want to... Now here's the strange thing. If If our heart is pure before God, it's a pretty good possibility our hands will be filthy in our own sight, but pure in his. If I am too busy trying to make sure my hands are clean, my heart will become terribly impure and I won't seek to touch anyone. And that's exactly the difference between what had happened with someone like Nicodemus and on the other side, a woman at the well on the other side. And we're wavering between these two people. On one side, there's a woman who just desperately needs to see compassion. On the other side, there's a man who desperately needs to see what mercy is. And so here's a man who's seeking to ascend. Now the conversation is over with him. Consider that. And they're a group of people that want to know what purification really is. How dare you baptize Jews? They're already Jews. There's no need for that. But God says, look, what I'm looking for is a pure heart. The whole idea of a mikvah in the first place was that you sought to be clean from the inside. And then that was just an outward demonstration of what had already taken place inside. By the time that Jesus was walking the, the planet as Jesus, 
those people had really removed themselves from all of those particular internal you know, sort of standards. And it just basically said, here's the deal. You could shave your head, take this particular type of vow, you pay these kind of things, you give these sacrifices, and then you give yourself, you drop in the mikvah. But the problem is you could do all of that and go straight to hell and be horribly filthy in the sight of God. And I think every one of us has been there at one point or another. And that hits our first issue before we even get to what John really knows of himself. Are we really in a place where we can play that game? And let's be honest, we can play that game quite well and we will be applauded in the Christian circle and still have a horribly filthy heart. In a situation here, there are people arguing with a man. And hear me out. John had a simple message. Do you remember what it was? Repent. So the problem with your heart is your head. The word repent, metanoiacho, simply means to change your mind. And John's calling people out to change their mind. Change their mind on their reliance on themselves. Change their mind on basically trying to perform for God versus to surrender to Him. And as he's calling out to that, the people recognize this, even though John didn't just say, walk away from your sins, though we call them to repent. He didn't just say, I want you all confessing your sins now. It tells us that that seemed to be, hear me out, the product of a person getting right with God. I mean, when you realize what the relationship is that God is offering you, and you realize how beautiful that relationship is, and then you realize what is in between you and Him, it becomes horribly ugly and abhorrent and abominable. And there's no problem saying at that point, God, I agree with you. This is horrible. This is ugly. This is nasty. And I want it gone. Unfortunately, there's another group of people who say, how dare you think? Don't you realize you're not even doing things properly? Do you remember back in John 2, there were six stone water jars that appeared to be empty, absent of water, that, Jesus, that were used for purification at a wedding that Jesus will ultimately turn that water to wine. And I think he gets, sort of reminds us of that by giving us this text again. The argument was over purification. But you know what's interesting? We have no conversation listed here of that, of that sort. We don't read anywhere in this what kind of conversation it was about purification. Strangely enough, what we do read that was the motive behind those people and their argument over purification. It wasn't that they felt like they were doing it wrong and they were asking John, what's the right way? In other words, it was not about protocol. It really was just over alpha dog and superiority. It was a real challenge. What John was doing was challenging what they had established. I mean, let me just say this way. If you build something and call it godly, and then God comes in and says it doesn't match with him, and he seems to be opposite of it, something needs to change. Which side changes? And there will be people, by the way, who will change everything to keep God out at that point instead of let God change their mind. And there are people that say, look, at, well, will God allow me to be this? Will God allow me to continue in this lifestyle because that's just the way I feel or, or this particular tendency or this appetite? And there comes a point where God just meets you there and says, this doesn't play anymore. And either you box God out at that point or you change your mind. And cults, every cult that sort of calls itself a Christian organization has confronted that on many occasions. But instead of changing their mind, they change their Bible instead. And that's, of course, why they have their own scriptures. Because God said, we're at a crossroad here. Either you change your mind or you're going to have to change what you really think is true. Or what I say is true. So, there's this argument. And the argument over, again, what makes us pure? How do we make things pure? But notice what we really read here seems to be the heart of it in verse 26. Ravi, which just means teacher or master, 
There's that other guy. Remember him, the guy you testified of? The guy who was at the Jordan, he was baptized. Remember, you said, that's the guy, that's the Lamb of God, follow him. That's your man. Everyone's going to him now. Now, I can't imagine this to be anything but divisive at this point. Because what they're doing by doing this is pitting John the Baptist against Jesus. I mean, think about it. The moment you start saying, well, look at how many you have and look how many I have, immediately there's a line between us and we're sort of looking at, we're facing each other like opponents. Like the church can any place in the world. Well, all of a sudden it's, well, how many people are you? T- how many people are in your church? Well, let me tell you, you know, as, as if somehow you were more important if you had more people in your church than another. Now, I've been on both sides of that. I've been on the side where I'd be the, you know, I'd just say, enough, or Jesus is there. How much bigger can the church get? And the great thing is people didn't even know me because they don't try to carry myself like that, you know. That even when the church had grown to a place where it would be impressive to speak of numbers, we'd still say the same thing. And it was funny when you'd sort of have somebody come over to you and go, oh, bless your heart, you must have one of those little churches. Like a little church. If Jesus is there, how can a church be little if Jesus is there? And how can another person added to it make it any larger if not even the heavens of heavens can't even contain him? When we're forgetting who it is we're serving in all of this. And then look and say, now wait a minute. Don't you realize, John, you're becoming, hear me out, you're becoming obsolete. If you don't stop, you'll be obsolete. Now let me ask you something. In Christianity, when you seek to counsel, and then you become obsolete, is that failure or success? Because in my sight, it's success. If you have to rely on me for the rest of your life, I've failed you. If you expect only for God to speak when the Bible's open, I've failed you. If you expect the only time God's going to answer your prayer is if I'm there next to you holding a hand, then I've failed you. And you know why? Because John understood four things, and it's the four things, again, that we need to understand. John's response to that is, oh, really, how many? No, that's not his response. Or, well, wait a minute. Let me, and all of a sudden, he starts taking inventory of who it is that is on his side. Well, there's no sides to this thing. John knows four things. And notice, the first thing is, in verse 27, as he answers and says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. The first thing is, he knew where all good things came from. Now, hear me out. He knew... Where the good things came from. Interesting, to this text, it seemed like a strange answer if you realize that they're saying more people, because that's really the issue. It isn't that they say Jesus has more money or a nicer car or a bigger church building. As a matter of fact, Jesus will be homeless this entire time. Well, he won't be homeless. He just won't be at his home for at least three and a half years. But understand, the only issue of this, what is prioritizing one person over another, is the amount of people. And John looks and he says, any good thing has to come from the Father. Now, hear me out. I love the fact that one thing John understood is God's economy. If you were to look on God's economy and you were to see how God sort of delineates or denominates his currency, the highest currency there is, is you. I mean, everything else in the world outside of people is the smallest of his currencies at best. But the most valuable thing to God is you. And John even understood that. John didn't look and go, well, wait a minute, but I've got a better position on the Jordan River and I've been here longer and people know about me and they've now started a restaurant, Johnny B's, just right down the street, some fresh locusts and honey, you know I mean? There's a lot of things that can be in a moment like that and he does none of them. 
But wouldn't we be prone in a moment like that? Because what they're doing, I mean, and the enemy will do that with you as well. Hey, well, look at your ministry compared to this person's ministry. And doesn't that look more effective? And doesn't that look more vibrant? And, and look at how this person, they just seem like they cough and people get saved. And there you are striving and nothing's happening. And, and, you know, and you're, is this comparison. And then you're looking like, aren't you a bit of a failure at this point? John, remember when you used to have this big thriving thing and now since somebody else has it? It's not you. But the one thing that's pretty evident is the people that are saying this, which aren't John's disciples, mind you, are people that are coming to him, but they're very well aware of the fact that John ID'd him as the man. It isn't just that they saw him and they saw this and went, hey, by the way, take a look at this. They knew that John said, that's your man. So for, for John to say that, them to be aware of it, and then to say, remember that guy you said, that's your man? Well, everyone's following him. There'd be a part of you, wouldn't it? They just would be satisfied. So the first thing is he knew where all good things come from. Hear me out. This is what it says in James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And it comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. If there's any good thing, you can't earn it, you can't fight for it, but it can be given to you. In the simplest sense, again, the most fundamental term that is not in the devil's dictionary is the term grace. What John understood is grace. John understood that God gives, not God pays. And God will happily give you. As a matter of fact, it goes this far, and, and I'm not going to try to build some kind of crazy doctrine on it, but in Psalm 84:11, it tells us that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You'll say, well, there it is. See the pretense on that. I have to walk uprightly. But that doesn't mean you earn it. Walking uprightly is what's expected of you, just the same way that a child would be expected to obey the laws of his family. But the blessings a child receives isn't because of the uprightness. It just doesn't put you in the way of the things that the Father would want to do. I wouldn't want to bless my children in their disobedience because it would further encourage their disobedience. I wouldn't want to bless them in any way where they're already trying to disassociate themselves with me in relationship because the last thing I want is for them to have a father relationship with me. But if they were to walk close to me, it isn't that they've earned anything. It just really removes any impediment from me actually dumping grace on them like I'd want to. How much more your Heavenly Father who's perfect and not evil like I am. He knew where all good things come from. Do you? I mean, that becomes the great battle in Psalm 73, if you remember, when, he, when the psalmist looks there, sons of Korah, and they recognize that the wicked are prospering. They seem to be getting the fat get fatter, the weak get weaker, the oppressed become more oppressed. It's just my feet almost fell. really does look like he, he did to a moment. He's like, and I just said to myself, I've just been working so hard for nothing. As if somehow he's working for all of that, we're supposed to earn him all of these great graces of God. But on the other side of it, he goes, Then I went into the sanctuary of God, and there I saw their end. All of a sudden, he went into the church, and as he did, God lifted him up from the overcast, and he was able to see the eternity around him. And he recognized there, all they've gotten are greater weights when they plunge into the ocean of their own guilt. And do you recognize where all good things come from tonight? Are you still trying to earn what God would rather give? Because if you're trying to earn it, no wonder why he tells you to come to him exhausted and he'll give you rest. Second, it says then in verse 28, You yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The second thing is he knew who he wasn't. That's, by the way, a very fundamental issue. Now, not everybody does. And you know how horrible it is when you try to explain to somebody who's 60, still trying to dress like a 20-year-old, that they're old. No, they're not the oldest person in the world. 
But when they're trying to be 20, you can't be 20 at 60. And if you can, it's kind of a real supernatural act. But you know, it's like sort of, you know, it's in every culture, no matter where we've been in the world, there's always somebody who really just can't get past the fact that, and I know that the problem is I'm one of those people to some degree, and that's why I find it so humorous because it really hits me in the funny bone painfully. Um, you know, I'm, I'll definitely, I won't age gracefully. I'll fight every inch and second of it. But in the end of it all, you get to that point where you realize, then you look and you see your children and you're like, your children, my children don't need a 10-year-old. My children need a father. And that makes a radical difference. But I know what it's like to go out there and try to play basketball with a bunch of people and forget how old I am. And to be honest, for a small period of time, my body will be just living on adrenaline. But when I get home, I have two things to remind me. First of all, my body, and my second is my wife, who will happily say, don't expect any back rubs from me tonight. You've earned this one yourself. But do you know who you're not? By the way, let me tell you a couple things. You're not the Savior. You're not God. You're not the master of the universe. You're not the person with all the answers, nor has ever God required you to be. You're not the healer. You're not the transformer. You're a hose. Don't be stopped up. You're a hose. And to be honest, the benefit of the hose is only what you're attached to. If you are attached to living water, you will provide life for thousands or more. But if you're attached to a sewer repository, you'll dump filth all over everyone. You haven't changed who you are. You've only changed what you're attached to. So hear me out. The best news is what you're not, not what you are. In this sense, in regards to ministry, the best news about who you are in general is that you're the child of the king, loved, lavished upon, but God can take his eyes off of you and he adores you because he's created you to be with him. <laughs> he's, he's made a beautiful hose out of you, but in all of that, the artwork will be what comes and flows through you, not what you are in and of yourself. And John knew that. He's like, look it. I told you before I'm not the Christ. And you watch this a lot in pastoral ministry. My heart, first and foremost, as you know, have been for people in ministry, primarily because a lot of these things get forgotten somewhere along the way. You invest in someone and they go back into drugs. Now, most of those people do come back and straighten up. But at that moment, you beat yourself over the head and go, what could I have done? If there's one more thing I could have added to it to kick them back into, well, you're not the Savior. You'll never be. But you're a hose. Stay attached to what you need to stay attached to. Because your abiding will be the difference between life and death, between filth and joy. Third thing, verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Also, again, aware of who he's not. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. The third thing is, he knew what wasn't his. When he looked at these people that were going to Jesus, he knew they weren't his. But now, look at the beautiful illustration he gives us. We are, now, those of you who were a few weeks ago, when we walked through the whole sort of Middle Eastern marriage ceremony, where David and Trista got married again, you remember the Shoshpanin, the friend of the bridegroom, who, by the way, twice has the responsibility of being there for the groom. 
The first, when he actually ushers in the future bride for the proposal. That's the friend of the bridegroom's job. For which he rejoices greatly when he hears the voice of the bridegroom because he knows what's about to transpire. And the second time, of course, when the groom comes to get his bride after the season of beautification, when he's built the house so he can get the bride constantly with the marriage and then they can live for the rest of their life happily ever after. Those are the two primary responsibilities. Hear me out. Those are the two primary responsibilities for the friend of the bridegroom. And in both cases, he rejoices when he hears the groom's voice. Now, that doesn't play much today, but let's just say it does in its simplest sense. Let's just say, and I'm just going to pick on somebody here. Let's just say Naomi, um, single, nice young lady, um, that we happen to know a guy. And this isn't the case, so you can actually rest, Naomi, to know that. But let's say we know this guy, and let's say his name is Fnerdner, the Magnificent. <laughs> you know, so that it doesn't make it sound like anyone that we might know. And we're well aware of the fact that Fnerdner the Magnificent is everything that his name is cracked up to be. And we've been telling Fnerdner about you. We've been telling you about Fnerdner. And I just can't wait to introduce the two of you and um, into traditional courtship situation. And I go, here you go. And here's Fnerdner, Naomi. Naomi, here's Fnerdner. And Naomi, as pleasant as her name actually ascribes herself to be. So the two of them sit down at the table. And imagine as the two of them sit down there, I sit down with them and go, so what do you think? How do you think? And I become the center of all of the conversations. Would that be the silliest thing in the world? Well, let's go beyond that. And I'll try not to make this in any way eeky or strange. But there comes a day where Naomi's completely taken by Fnerdner, head over heels. Her pumps are thrown in the air, and she just throws caution to the wind, and she says, Fnerdner, marry me, and let's start a ministry somewhere in England. Fnerdner, of course, gladly resides himself to doing so, and the two of them stand there, and there they are standing there, and I'm the do you, will you, do you, will you, I do, I do, I do. And then they say, you may kiss the bride. And then I jump in between them and go, what do you think, guys? And then they both kiss me on the cheek. And then I look at them and go, so where are we going? And they're like, it's a honeymoon. I go, yeah, where are we going? The three of us. Now, would that be the, a sort of like almost a situational comedy that will probably make its way to the film sooner or later, won't it? Right? What about Pastor Bob or something like that, right? But consider the fact what John knew was, was what wasn't his. He knew that that romance wasn't his. He got the joy of being a part of watching it happen, but he wasn't the, he wasn't the, the, he wasn't the destination. He was the route. And imagine what that would be like. John looks and he goes, this isn't mine. This is his. And the, I don't want to be an obstacle in this. If, boy, the end of it all is making your way to me, what a terrible place that would be. You'll find yourself terribly disappointed because what I want you to lead you to is Jesus. I mean, you find him, you find perfection. You find me, you'll find fault. You should find fault. I'm human. But there gets a point where all of a sudden you see the two connect. You watch you get with Jesus and Jesus in a face with you. And you're like, ooh, better leave the room now. Things are getting a little warm in here. And you realize the reason for that is because my job's done. I mean, times like this, I just get the joy of going, well, let me ask you, how are things going? Here's the good part. This is one place where marriage counseling is one way. I guarantee you, you'll never have a point where it's like, well, Jesus, you really need to change your behavior in this if you're going to want this marriage to work. I mean, unfortunately, you've married somebody perfect. And because you've married someone perfect, he doesn't even need to show up at the counseling appointment, but he's here anyways. But it's like, I'd really like to make a few changes so that our relationship could actually thrive. And John knew what wasn't his. And he looked and said, the friend of the bridegroom, that's who I am. And by the way, there is a 
rhapsody. There's a joy. There's an Elysian, just a febrile elation over the fact that you get to be anything in this. I mean, God could have done the whole thing around us. And to actually incorporate us into it is God condescending to use us when he really didn't need to. God didn't need our introduction, which we all agree would be a bit faulty. The margin of errors the party includes us in. But he does anyways. Isn't that fantastic? The God says, you know what? Why don't I do that anyways? Why don't I use you to introduce you to, to, to me? Introduce someone else to me? In the end of it all, though, no one to leave the room. John did. Now, understand, the people that were coming to him initially were arguing over purification, and oddly enough, whether they know it or not at this moment, John is dealing with that exact area with them. Because if these people are sent like they were the first time by the religious leaders, and they were, in essence, henchmen of just these religious leaders, these religious leaders had been become the people that were doing exactly what I mimicked and mocked in front of us all right now. I mean, these were people, if you remember, that were coming into the middle of something, seeking to interface with God. And in the middle of it all, there they are sticking their face in and going, Hi, what do you think? Is it good? Do you like me now? Well, the bottom line is you don't even have to like who introduced you to God. Because in the end of it all, they'll be relatively inconsequential from that point on to some degree. Because God's going to do the work whether he did it through them or around them. And the same with you. Do you remember Malachi speaking to Esther? One thing Malachi was sure of is that God was going to deliver the people. I mean, he was well aware that God had too many promises invested that hadn't come to pass yet. So it wasn't like he could say, well, let's God kill all the Jews, because he couldn't. There was no place in Scripture for a replacement when God had too many promises to the Jews, which he had yet to fulfill. And, and Mordecai knew it. And so the issue was not whether God was going to do what he said he was going to do. That's never the issue. God's going to do it. The issue is just whether he's going to use you in it. Which, by the way, is not... The issue of his desire, but really the thing in the balance, the variable is yours. And that's what Mordecai says to Esther. He says, now look it, God is going to bring deliverance. And he wants to use you. Perhaps he's risen you up for such a season as this, for this very purpose. But if you walk away from this, God will use someone else. The question is, would that be a horrible loss or not? We could reside ourselves in something what seems very insulated and isolated and very careful and padded and very comfortable and just like a leper, numb ourselves to death from the thrill and the ecstasy of being used by the groom. What a fantastic thing it is. And so I wake up in the morning and say, all right, God, however you want to use me, use me. I know it's your sense of humor. I know in it you work well. You're a good enough master um, to use weird and tweaked and broken things and still make beautiful things out of it. But I know it's not mine. When we walked away from California, one of the first things we, we said before the whole thing went down was, you've never been mine. This is Christ's church. This is not my church. This isn't the church of Pastor Anthony or church of Tony. This is the church of the living God. Because if it was the church of mine, I'd kill you all. Praise God it's not. But I love it's the church of the living God. And as a result of that, I expect God to do things. If it was my church, I'd expect dust to be kicked. But if it's the church of the living God, I expect mountains to be moved. Do you know what's not yours? Because if you're chasing after what's not yours, you'll never be happy. If you're trying to claim what's not yours, you'll never be happy. Because it will fall from you. You won't be able to hold it. 
And if you hold it tight enough, you'll just break it. And then what do you have? I mean, in the end of it all, what do we own? Even our lives are not our own. We're told we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We were bought with a price. Our lives are not our own. I can't hold on to this. And you can see Jesus saying then, if you really want to try to hold on to this, you're going to lose it. But if you really let the person who owns it have it, you'll actually find the life you're looking for. That's the irony of the whole thing. So are you really trying to hold on to what's not yours tonight? Because you know what? There's something about letting God do His work that brings total peace. But there's one more. Verse 30. And now you see why we've only gone this far. He must increase. I must decrease. He knew His future. I mean, He knew where good came from. He knew who He was or wasn't. He knew what wasn't His. And He knew what was His future. His future, hear me out, was to become invisible. But to become less. Not more. You know the problem is? There is no paradigm of this in the world anywhere, is there? I mean, in business, the most important person is the person who has the most servants, who has the biggest name, and most people know it. The more people, the better. In the music industry, that's the absolute worst. I almost think it's oxymoronic to say the Christian music industry, because the music industry is all about building a fan base. You know what a fan base is? fan is someone fanatic about you. I mean, that's somebody who doesn't serve in reason when they think about you. Their affections are beyond reason. Think about that for a minute. Now, in America, we have American football. It's very different. I do agree that what we would call soccer in America should be called football. You kick the ball with your foot. You can't touch it with your hands unless you're a goalie. Sounds like a good game for football. Our game really should be called soccer because people get more socked than they actually do use their foot. I think if you swap them, I think we'd all be fine with it. But it's 40 degrees below Celsius. I mean, at this point, everyone's nose is running and it just freeze like a mustache on the top of the lip. Right? I mean, the very breath turns into cumulus clouds, clouds in front of you. But if you watch an American football game and one of those things... Inevitably, in the third row, there's a man wearing just a pair of boxers and a lot of paint. The school colors. One's half of his body painted one way, the other half, it's blue and red, it's orange and gray, whatever the colors are of the school. Screaming, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fan. His affection for that particular team goes beyond his reason. Well, that makes sense. It doesn't make sense what he's doing. And you think, well, that guy must be insane, inebriated, or both. And you say, well, in the end of it all, he's a fan. That's what he is. On the same way, there are people who so desire to just see somebody from the great distance to where they couldn't even throw a rock at them because they're so far away, that they will, they will quit the job, sleep out for six days so they can get a ticket, so they can watch something from a distance. Now, that to me is affection beyond reason. But in the end of it all, oh, they looked my way. Well, you and about 6,000 other people in your particular section. That's a fan. And then they can say, well, let me tell you what success is as a Christian musician. To have a great fan base. Do I really want people with that kind of affection for me beyond the reason? I've had stalkers before. It's overrated. I don't think that this should be the case for anyone. I don't recommend it. Let me just say to you, 
that what God tells us here and what, through John is completely opposite of anything the world's going to tell you. You need to disappear. You need to put yourself at the bottom where you can serve people. The fact that we call it the bottom in the first place. Did you have to be a servant of more people and not become the Lord over them, but an example instead? Jesus, look, at this is what I know. I need to get this. But it isn't, no, hear me out. God is never a God of knots. He's a God of instead ofs. Remember that. It's not just that I get less. It's that he gets more in the process. That's the idea in this. It isn't just, I just want to become less important in your life. It's, look, at I want to swap you in a way for what's the best trade-up I can give you. I mean, it's like deal or no deal. There's me, and I can serve you for a period of time. But in the end of it all, Jesus is next to me. Choose him. It's a good deal. It's the best deal. That's the idea of this. Now, that becomes the problem when you enter into this relationship with God at the cross as if somehow he owed you anything, first of all, versus him condescending. And in that, if somehow what you're really going for is a life improvement program. Because if that be the case, you're actually, think about it, you're entering at the cross to increase, not decrease. Well, wait a minute, does God really want me to change this attitude or this particular perspective or this paradigm or this lifestyle or this value system? Yes, absolutely. He wants to change every bit of that. Now, he doesn't want you to change it. He wants you to change your mind and allow him to rewrite it all. He's the architect. He's the screenwriter for your life, the script of your life. That's the good news. He's just looking for permission. That's the idea of repentance. You're giving him permission. But the moment you say, all right, God, I'll enter into this thing as long as you've immediately made him your servant instead of you becoming his. And at that point, you're not really seeking to decrease. You're seeking to increase. Oh, God, please, I'll, I'll come into this thing and I'll have a relationship with as long as my girlfriend's not pregnant, as long as I don't have a disease, as long as I don't get arrested tomorrow, or as long as I don't have to do the time when the court trial comes to pass. Now, in the end of it all, what you're saying is, God, increase me. But now hear me out. The converse then is also true. The moment you start to increase, Christ starts to decrease in his prominence in your life. And that becomes the problem. Now think about those times in your life when, when your walk with Christ was the most vibrant and your life was the very best. How much of you was in that mix? Put it on the other side. Remember the moments in your life where they were most in the toilet? When you hated it the most and at that moment you would have happily given it all up. How much of you was in that mix? You realize the radical difference there is what John understood and that he knew his future and his future was time to leave time to decrease. But the good news is that's the case with us too, beloved. Hear me out. It is the case for us. That Christ wants us to decrease. Now, it, now, how do we do that? I mean, practically. How do I decrease? Because if I try to do it, it will be false humility. Oh, no, no, no. Don't talk about me. It's really not about me. But in the end of it all, I'm still talking about me telling you not to. But the moment I watch Christ do the work, it's permanent and it's amazing. And he has no problem making us small in his sight of being large. Well, he's asking for his permission. So, beloved, hear me out as we bring this around to prayer now. For every one of us here today, God wants to ask us those same four questions. Do you know where all good things come from? Because if all good things come from you, well, then you should increase. But if all good things come from him, then decreasing and letting him increase is really kind of a very wise thing, isn't it? Along those lines, though, by the way, God also has the right to definition. Do you know what that means? That means God has a right to define what good is. That might be a trial, which we would 
never called good. But the result of it is good. I mean, chastising is good in the sight of God if it's done right, for the right reason. But we wouldn't call it good. Do you know where all good things come from? Second then, again, do you know who you're not? Because there not there great freedom in that? Isn't there celebration in that? I'm not the Savior of London, nor is anyone but one. There's only one Savior, the living God, the Lord God of Israel. Praise God for that. Third again, do you know what's not yours? I mean, if in the end of it all, you know what you're not, well, then you know who it, who it doesn't belong to. It doesn't belong to you. And fourth again, do you know your future in this? Do you know that God calls us all to decrease? That's the blessing of being here. Now, with that in mind, I would like to pray. And so I lay this out for us as we go to prayer now. First of all, again, if you are walking with Christ, but somehow your relationship is somehow flipped to the point where somehow you really expect Christ to show up in duty for you, it is really time to let God change that right now. Because if not, someone's going to come up just like these people did, or person, whoever that is, to create this trouble, and you're going to find yourself in a terrible quandary. You're going to find competition with people who should be your allies. But lastly, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, here it is in a simple sense. We're all sinners. We've all deserved guilt. We all deserve condemnation and eternal separation from the living God. But God in His infinite and perfect love for us punished it all on the cross by sending His only begotten Son to die on the cross for us. He died there magnificently to pay for everything, horribly and torturously so, and then rose again from the grave to offer us a brand new life. Have you accepted that gift tonight? Because if you've not accepted that gift, I would love the honor of giving you that opportunity to simply say yes to Him tonight. That's the option you have. But beloved, take Him on His terms. Because if you take Him on yours, you're not really going to the cross as God intended. But tonight God would like to swap your death for His life, your filth for His purity, your complete and utter contumacious wickedness for His an utter and glorious holiness. But that's up to you. That's the choice you need to make tonight. Will you pray with me, please? God, I want to thank you first for the opportunity tonight to pray for these dear and precious people that you bled and died for and that you love and have no desire that they would perish. I am so thankful that you have no desire that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance. All would change their mind. They would change their mind about who you are and who they are. And they would change their mind about the fact that they need to be rescued so that they would cry out to you as their rescuer, not to me, but to you. As you tell us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I pray right now, God, please, for every person here, within the earshot, whether they've come to this study intentionally or whether they're just in the periphery, Show them tonight the responsibility of choice and that tonight they could cry out to you and that you would wash them clean. You would, wash, you would cut the cord of their past that has owned them and dominated them and you'd give them life tonight. And if that's you, then just pray the simple prayer with me right now. I'm going to pray a simple prayer and if you agree, just say amen. I ask you to say it out loud, but don't even worry about the people next to you. This is a moment where you need to just... And all amen says is, I agree, let these words be mine. And here it is. God in heaven, I admit to you, I'm faulty. I've sinned, I've blown it, I've made mistakes. I've done wrong. I stand guilty before you. And I know you as a righteous judge must punish all guilt. But I know in your infinite perfect love for me, you've paid that price 
by nailing all of my guilt to a cross, your only begotten Son. And then he died paying the penalty for all of my wrongdoing and then rose again on the third day, just like you promised. And so there's a living, risen Savior that wants me. And I say yes. I don't try to climb to him. He's condescended to me. I say yes to him. And I confess Jesus as my redemption and my ransom, as my Savior and my Lord. I am yours. Have me now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you agree, amen.